Welcome to the Investment Clinic Live, your monthly 30-minute online chat with an investor. And now your host, Brindusa Burroughs. Here we go. We are live for our next investment clinic. Today, 20th of February, we are with Pierce Cumberledge, who is with Global Sustainable Capital Management. He also works with a startup called All You Need for Growth UK. And Pierce, maybe you can tell us a little bit about both of these entities in a minute. Very pleased to have you here. And thank you for taking the time to, to talk to our audience. Entrepreneurs in the network of the Ground Up Project and the Investment Clinic are very keen to hear from investors like yourself and others to learn more about how they can prepare when they pitch and when they look for for investment, whether it's equity or debt or any other types of capital. So we set up the Investment Clinic because investment readiness is the number one challenge of impact ventures. And that challenge actually narrows investable impact deal flow considerably. But we have noticed across the industry that across all categories of impact, only 2% of ventures are ready to be introduced to investors. So through the investment clinic and the Ground Up Project would like to change that. So we offer expert support to cater to each individual venture. And this includes things like review financial modeling, validate your revenue models, feedbacks on teasers, assess your pitch decks, review your business plans, and any other fundraising questions. Um, We've had, the last time we had a live clinic, for example, one of the entrepreneurs was in the process of negotiating their interest rate with a local bank. So the expert was very helpful in giving them tips on how to negotiate at the moment. These are uh, confidential conversations and we they're tailored on a one-on-one to suit each individual entrepreneur. I mentioned the Ground Up project is our deal sourcing platform for sustainability. Any entrepreneur can sign up and use the, the sign-up form to self-assess their investor readiness. There's a series of questions that have been validated with investors that at the end offer a picture across six dimensions of the business, a picture of of readiness on a scale of zero to 100. And that, we hope, is a useful tool for entrepreneurs, but it also is a tool for investors to select businesses according to their level of of maturity. So having said that, Pierce, just a quick word about your bio, which is incredibly impressive. You are today with the Global Sustainable Capital Management, which is a 250 million investment manager. You're based in London, and you're also a partner in All You Need for Growth. But I also picked a number of things in your bio that have to do with uh, your business experience in financial and corporate investment. You have set up that GPT and International Investment Corporate Venture Group. More recently, you co managed the Canada Investment Fund for Africa. And in between, you have had a host of experiences in non-executive roles, in chairmanship roles, in various types of companies across industries. I wonder if you if you want to say a few words about what's it like to be both on the business side and on the investment side. You know, if, if there are any things that you have actually used in your investment career that you've learned in the in the business side and, and vice versa. Sure. Well, Brindusa and uh, everyone else listening in, um, it's a great privilege for me to be able to join you today. I'd uh, love to share with you small elements of experience I've gathered over the years. 
you're absolutely right, Brenda. So I've been I've been sort of backwards and forwards in between the investment world, uh, financial investment world, and corporate world. Though in that corporate world, I've done a fair amount of, of investment, corporate venture uh, activity as well. And and yes, you ask a question as to whether there are um, lessons and tools that you can bring across. Absolutely, I. Uh, uh, when I when I went to Moscow, I, I originally went there to set up the operations, the monitoring and the operational monitoring of the portfolio and took with me, frankly, the baggage of project management and enterprise management tools that I'd been working with in one of the uh, General Electric Company businesses in the UK. And uh, that has an absolutely appropriate application because it's very easy when you're an investor to say, well, I'm great at the spreadsheets, I'm great at uh, allocating capital, I'm great at appraising and selecting strategies, business models, and management. And then it kind of stops there. Mm. Whereas actually now there's an increasing focus on the operating partner, the operational value add that a good investor brings to an investing company. Mm. And, and I would suggest to those of you in the audience who, who are looking to raise investments, you should definitely be questioning the investors as to what value they get to bring you over and above the money. The non-financial benefits, yes. This is something that very often is, is forgotten. And it is an important part of the conversation that any entrepreneur should have with their investor. And you say this in your investor lecture, actually, which is available on theinvestmentclinic.com, it is an important part of the, of the fundraising process that the entrepreneur also prepares on what the investor is, a track record is, and, and the sort of matching of the interest is there. We're going to touch on this in a second. We have this as, as one of the questions that we'd like to ask you, but let's start first with another one, which is also something that you elaborate a bit more in your investor lecture how can small impact deals appeal to larger ticket investors? And this is something that we hear over and over, for example, from entrepreneurs who say, I only need 100,000 or I only need 300,000 and I'll be able to do so many things that afterwards I'll be able to raise a million later on. And so they go for the smaller ticket with the impression that if they only ask for a very you know, small amount, that would actually pass better, you know, with, with the investor. What is your view on that? I have to say, I deeply sympathize with the entrepreneur who gets that response from, uh, they've sort of looked on the internet, they've done their research, they've found the investor they think would be the perfect investor. They go to that investor with a perfect pitch. And the investor turns around and says, well, yeah, I'm sorry, but it's too small for us. My heart goes out to you because it is, you're saying, but you know, surely you can deploy that capital and it's going to be a success. And we'd understand if you said it was too big for you, but too small. So sympathy is there. The, the reality of it is that the investor has a challenge. Their job is to deploy capital and they have a fund they've got to, or they have a source of capital. They've got to invest that capital and they've got to move it out of the door and into investments. And one of the challenges simply is that there is a sort of, there is a base level of cost associated with any investment, which is related to the due diligence time, the investor time, the legal 
costs and so on and putting it together. And unfortunately, you know, it costs pretty much the same to do a 100,000 deal as to do a 1 million deal. So really, the way that I would advise you to think about it is look in terms of the strategy of your business over a longer cycle. Don't just look at what I need now, what I need in the next six months in order to carry me over the next 18 months. That's your immediate problem. But because you're an entrepreneur, you're building a business. Ultimately, your vision is to build something which is going to be a lot bigger than that. And what I'd advise you to do is share that early with your investor. So you say, I need 100,000 is going to get me through the next 12 months. Fine. But actually, as my business grows, I'm going to need another 600,000 12 months on from now. And after that, I'm going to move in and I'm going to need another million and a half in order to grow. So suddenly, the picture you're talking about there is 2.2 million. That's a big number. That's a much, and, and the investor then starts to look at that and says, okay, there's a plan here. And maybe it makes sense for me because I can commit notionally that longer amount of money, that larger amount of money. I know that I've got the opportunity to deploy it if this investment's going to be successful. But actually, I'm not taking the risk of it right now. So they, they have in their mind the bigger number, but they're looking at it as a series of stages. And you, become effectively your your hundred thousand you need now becomes phase one of a staged investment process it de-risks it for the investor it's a bigger number for, for the investor it's also helpful to you even though you haven't got the commitment for the bigger number they've only just they, you know, they only go firm and write the check for the first hundred thousand at the same time it gives you line of sight to capital as your business is growing. And frankly, it also gives you the opportunity to talk to other investors saying, as your business is growing, Jane and her fund came in now, but I know they're going to be with me over the next two and a half years. They've certainly indicated their intention of doing that. And of course, you can speak to Jane and her team, but maybe you want to be a part of that longer term growth as well. It gives, it gives a better story for your growth. So pretty simplistically, think about planning your investment in a sort of phased way over the longer term so that you're looking at the bigger number. You've got a strategic view of where you want to be taking it. But now I need the 100,000 quick. And then after that, we move on. That's that's the way I'd suggest you address it. Mm-hmm. And does that mean in this case that you as an entrepreneur also commit for the bigger number? So in other words, if the commitment is made today for the 100,000, does that mean you're also committed for the rest to go back to the same investor? Or is this something that both parties have to come back to after the first tranche has been has been realized? It depends how you want to structure it and how they want to structure it. And any self-respecting investor is going to say, all right, I will give you the 100000 now, and I want first refusal on subsequent investment that you're going to raise. Mm-hmm. And they will ask for that first refusal. And they may, depending how your business is structured, they may ask for some form of um, text around that in the shareholders' agreement, in, in their initial investment agreement. And they may also ask for, for things like warrants or some other formal instrument, which gives them the opportunity to deploy capital further down the road. If they do that, go back to them and say, OK, guys, but let's not be one-sided about this. Let's have let's try and be a little bit reciprocal in the relationship. 
you'd like that kind of commitment from me. Can I get some kind of commitment from you so that I know that you've got a call on my shares or you've got a call on the ability to invest going forwards, but I've also got the ability to turn around and an expectation that you would come in, not just a hope, but an expectation, and try and structure something in there. It may not get into the investment agreement. It may become a side letter, but it, it's I, I find very difficult to argue against reciprocity. Reciprocity is a notion of equity, and try try and aim for that. Mm, that's really good advice, and I think it summarizes that you know one should not be afraid to to present the entire growth vision and then just take it step by step in a in a reciprocal way. I think this will be very helpful to a number of entrepreneurs who have asked uh, this question who struggle with this kind of strategy. I guess it it kind of. Uh, goes into the second question, which is about alignment of interests. And obviously, you know, a lot of things could go wrong in the relationship between the entrepreneur and the investor, but a lot of things actually can become a mutually supportive relationship. So what does alignment of interests actually mean? And how does one, how does an entrepreneur think about alignment of interest with the investor from the start when they, when they approach the investor? The entrepreneur has a dream. The entrepreneur has a vision. The entrepreneur wants to build a business. The entrepreneur's job one focus is, I want to make this business work. And by making this business work, I am going to also generate significant personal value, wealth, capital, whatever it may be. But the entrepreneur, the real focused entrepreneur is sort of desperately conscious that the business has to be first and the money is going to be created as a byproduct of a successful business. Good investors understand that too. But a lot of investors are really focused. Their job is to make money out of money. They're effectively selling you, the entrepreneur, their capital. And they want to do that in as efficient a way as possible, which means the least work for the greatest return, the least capital for the greatest return. Now, that can, and that can very quickly lead to a conversation where you're saying, but hang on, you've got to stick with me because I'm growing this business. And if I grow this business, then I'm going to make money and I'll make money for me and you. That is, to a certain extent, really the focus of alignment of interest. It's how do you get to a point where there's a mutual understanding that by doing what you as the entrepreneur say you're going to do, you're going to generate value and wealth for and economic returns for the investor and you're going to do it for yourself as well in order to do that well you've got to have a timeline you've got to have a very clear understanding of how the business is going to itself create value and you've got to get the entrepreneur the investor to believe in that and you've also got as part of that to work through with the investor how long you're going to do this, go on this journey together. Because actually, and particularly on the equity side, debt is a bit different, but on the equity side, absolutely, the investor is coming into your family. They're coming into your business. They are a part of your management. They're on your board. It's almost intrusive. And so you've got to feel very comfortable that they're in the right place there and that they understand what you're doing. They've also got to feel very comfortable being there and that they can trust you and that actually when they come to the board meetings and so on, it's a forward-thinking, positive conversation about where we are going 
not, oh, how do we blame each other for not having sorted out the problems at the moment? That takes building trust. And in order to do that, one thing I would strongly encourage you is, is to reflect on, plan in advance and reflect on how long it takes to build trust with the investor. A three-month courtship and then bang, the money comes in is not necessarily going to be a great place for you to be, a great starting place for you in five years' time. It takes time to get to know people. It takes time to get to know people when they are not so good or, or when times are bad as opposed to when times are good. And you need to spend, frankly, I always recommend a minimum of six months. And that six months is, a lot of that is really preparing yourselves to get into a very close relationship with each other. And that close relationship is, once established, based on that alignment of interest. It is a common interest in going forwards together. Let me just quickly now address one piece on that too, which is the end game. The investor is coming into your business and the investor is going to exit that business because they need to make money by selling back the shares, back or selling somehow, their shares, their economic interest in the business. They've probably got a timeline. It depends on investors, but it's somewhere between three and five years, typically. They're looking to be in the business for three to five years and to have sold by five years from from their first investment. They need to understand whether you are, in five years' time, going to be happy to sell that business. Are you also happy to sell it out to Microsoft or Google or whoever's going to buy it from you? Or is it actually something that you having increasingly feel or you even get from the get-go, this is going to be my family business over the next 35 years? And after I finish running it, my kids are going to run it. If that's the case, then you need to make sure the investor understands that right from the get-go or as soon as that becomes apparent to you, you need to start sharing it because you need to be helping them to understand where your mind is going so that they can lock in with that and so that you don't have surprises when they say, well, hang on, I need to sell out now and we're going to force you to sell as well to Microsoft. You say, but no, I want this business. I want to stay with this one. That's where the challenges come. The earlier you have that discussion and ideally before the investment goes in, the better so that you're aligned on what the outcome is as well as the journey to get there. That's uh, one of the investors that we were speaking with um, recently was saying that this relationship is worse than a marriage because from a marriage you can divorce, whereas from this relationship you actually can't get out. And in fact, all of the things that you're saying better be uh, discussed and, and aligned before the investment comes in. And it's very often underestimated just how important it is to look forward, not just to, you know, getting the investment that you need now to operate, but but also look at look at the exit. And especially, as you're saying, in the case of equity. So thank you for that. I think um, uh, anyone can listen more in more detail about that in your lecture. Again, on the investmentclinic.com investor lectures, you elaborate extensively on on this point. Now, if you don't mind, I would like to ask you for for our audience who is into sustainable agriculture, what is sustainable agriculture to you? And how do you achieve your goals through the investments that you're selecting? 
and this very much comes to you know your investment thesis and uh, and how you apply it just to sort of give a sense how does that work from you as an investor yeah we we have the business that uh, you're referring to producer is called uh, global sustainable capital management and focus as an investment manager there is investing in sustainable agriculture projects principally in Africa and Latin America typically investing tickets investment sizes somewhere in the 10 to 20 million though with some flexibility around that for us sustainability is not a label it's not just a branding piece it's something that is actually fundamentally baked into business approach and our investment thesis let me give you some senses of what that actually really contains when we're looking at investment we're looking at an, an agricultural investment you have a a series of sort of different dimensions that you can look at on the sustainability piece there are elements related to environmental sustainability there are elements related to economic sustainability there are elements related to social sustainability all of these are critical vectors that we look at as being drivers of or potentially detractors from the value of the investment so we say okay we're coming in with the money and that is one piece of what we bring to the uh, investment and there will be just simply from the generation of the cash flows in an investment there will be value created for that initial money the cash flows created in, out of the business but much more fundamentally there is a platform of the business which has people it has crops it has land all of those are key pieces for us to understand in order to look at a broader picture of value around the investment we we use a questionnaire process which we share with our investee companies before we invest and that questionnaire is very detailed and essentially addresses a whole series of different core elements of the sustainability matrix if you like as as gscm looks at an investment we take a questionnaire to the potential uh, investee company to the management of the investee company and we work through it and what we're trying to do is to really pull out of the answers from that and we share very much our, our, our methodology with them to pull out from them answers that are going to be helping us to provide a score or a series of metrics around some of the what we perceive to be the key risks sustainability risks in that business and just to give you an example on one recent project we've been looking at we came up with risks around and sustainable management land rights stakeholder engagement working rights energy and greenhouse gas emissions waste biodiversity water soil economics uh, issues and ethics and we scored those and essentially we score those with a baseline of where the business is at the time we do the questionnaire we complete it and we go through that with with our partners the investee company share it with them and we say okay well now let's actually try and identify from that firstly which of the key risks in that particular um, business we found that uh, working rights sustainable management and water were the key risks we look at a baseline and we fix a baseline as at the time that we invest and then we look at it and we set a target of where we want to try and get to and we have an overall risk score which is essentially 
comes as an accumulation, an average of all of those. In some cases, we apply a weighted average, but generally now we're coming down to focus on a standard average and accumulation there. And to give you an example, water in that particular case, we saw that uh, there was very definitely a high risk around water. Our baseline score was down at the level of three, and we have a target to get it up to 40 over a period of five years working in the business. Now, how are we going to do that? We're going to be looking at the irrigation profile of the business. It is, it is a plantation. We're going to be looking at the irrigation profile. We're going to be looking at what kind of water access is there. Uh, we know, obviously, before we invest what water access, but what are going to be the opportunities for changing that from, for example, aquifer depletion to some run of river to perhaps even rainwater harvesting? Those are some of the issues that we look at, and we then come up with a series of goals out of that, which we apply to the investment, and we work through, in this case, you know, conserving water through best practice techniques on site, installing water storage facilities, both benefiting the project and local communities, so that uh, the important thing is to be able to get enough water there so that the project itself does not divert it from the local community as well. Those are, those are some of the issues we look at. This basket of risks, which then turn into effectively opportunities for value creation, we believe also fundamentally add value to the business. Because someone who is in five years' time looking at investing in that business can come in and can say, well, actually, it's been de-risked on the land right side. It's been de-risked on stakeholder engagement with the small older farmers around, for example. It's been de-risked on the labor side with working rights because they've put in place great labor practices. Greenhouse gas emissions have been reduced. Waste has come down to zero. They have increased biodiversity in the area, and they've solved the water problem. When you look at that, you then say as an investor coming in, hey, there's a whole bundle of risks that have been removed, and that therefore for us creates greater value, and we can pay a bit more for it. And so from our point of view, sustainability is not just uh, ticking some boxes and saying, okay, we will pay lip service to this. It's actually putting in place active programs which create value in the business we're investing in. Does this um, risk scoring translate also into the price of money today? Or does it only imply that you um, engage in a set of activities to de-risk over time for these risks that you mentioned? We, we don't, I mean, clearly, as we look at the risks, if we feel that some of those risks are very substantial and that they're risks which are going to actually seriously potentially impair the value of our investment, then yes, we, we have to price our investment accordingly. Uh, but but you know, managing risk, there are many ways you manage risk or deal, you approach risk. Sometimes you manage it, sometimes you insure against it, sometimes you price on risk, and sometimes you just take a very strong operational view. And for these sustainability risks, our approach is to take an operational view and to work through them with the investing company. Now, we've actually been very fortunate because we've we've developed a very robust framework and our investee companies to date have actually been sufficiently impressed by it to say, okay, guys, let's have that as, in a sense, a parallel part of the value you bring to us in the investment, because ultimately, and this is the alignment of interest piece again, ultimately, if you can create value by doing this, 
that value is not only for you, but also for us as the equity holders in the business. They eventually said, we are prepared to pay you a monthly retainer in order to implement the program that you're laying out there. So that's that's almost, it almost becomes a sort of, it's not technical assistance as such, but it almost does become a separate part of our relationship with them where they feel that the value we bring with that is sufficiently significant that they're actually prepared to pay for it. And of course, that's really critical because if you pay for something, you put value on it and you also help to make it happen. We've all seen technical assistance programs where someone provides technical assistance, but the recipient, because they don't pay for it, they sort of don't necessarily really value it. They don't embed the products into their own business. And often it comes out at best as a half success. Mm, I think uh, this is also where you and, and your team are doing such a great job so letting the entrepreneur know how this creates better value for, for them as well and for the project in, in the future and kind of how to engage on, the, on this learning journey that produces much better results, you know, years down the line. And, and at, at its most simplistic, in a sense, you know, agricultural land, after a crop has been on it for a period of time, the nutritional value of the land is depleted. And so ultimately the value of that land to be able to generate cash flow decreases. If you can, as opposed to having an amortization there, if you can be enhancing the soil characteristics, for example, through a sustainability program, then you're actually at best maintaining it flat, but actually, or at worst maintaining it flat, but at best increasing the value of that land as opposed to it being depleted by 15 years of a particular crop. Mm, good business and investment sense. A couple of quick questions from entrepreneurs ties in, I think, uh, with uh, with this one that I've got here. Entrepreneurs, for example, who have so this particular case is from DRC uh, Congo, but there's also uh, in our experience there are others who have worked in in Nigeria, for example. So how does one entrepreneur who comes from a, a jurisdiction that has, let's say, either political volatility or currency volatility, so they they belong to a context which is kind of out of their hands in a way, and they are trying to appeal to money that is in, let's say, the Western world as a generalized uh, you know, shortcut as opposed to capital from the continent, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or whether it's Southeast Asia or so on, what could one do in order to reassure the investor or work with the investor to address risks as, the, as these? <laughs> That's a tough one. Mm. It's a really tough mm. one, I'm afraid. But I think it's important to understand that there is a sort of, a, that there is an intermediate category You've got investors who are on the continent, investors, therefore, who are within the risk, overall, the sort of risk framework or the risk envelope of the continent. So for them, there's less of a premium to be demanded because they're already there. So that's obviously, and that's, and you mentioned that category of investors who are on the continent and everyone will be tapping them up. At the other extreme, you've got the people for whom 
people in the US for whom Mexico is a risky place to go and is a long distance. Ask them to come to DRC. That's tough. It really is tough. And they're going to say it's just too far. It's too much of a stretch for us. And it's and for us to want to go there, we are going to have to make so much return on our capital that ultimately it's not going to be worthwhile for you, the entrepreneur. And, and just don't even go there. It's not worth the conversation. There is, though, in the middle, there is a large group of the hybrid, I call them hybrid, they're the sort of the people who've got at least a toe in the water of the African continent, if not more. They understand the risks. They consider themselves to be Africa savvy. They are not within Africa. They're not African investors as such, but they consider themselves savvy enough about Africa to feel comfortable to be addressing it. We're in that space. I mean, we're not African capital, um, but on the other hand, we feel comfortable looking at African risk. We feel that we're, 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 we're relatively comfortable to understand what's inside that envelope and to interpret it to our own investors. So you're looking at intermediated capital there, essentially. Fund managers who are... They may be Western fund managers or Northern fund managers, but who are actually comfortable addressing African risk and DRC risk. And you know, DRC risk is tough risk to explain. So that's one piece of it. You've got to go and find them. Obviously, you've got the DFIs, but you've got increasing amounts of private capital that is also looking at that, which is not pure Africa and not pure offshore. You've got offshore diaspora groups. There are a few large groups like that based in the US who are people you could access, for example. The, the other thing, which is, is it really is critical, is getting them, if you can, getting those investors to come and visit you and do everything to try and make that happen. Because when they set foot on the ground, they start to realize that there is a a reality, a practical reality of the way things operate on the ground, which is not the CNN view of the world. It's not the horrors that they read in the newspapers or see on television. It's actually that business is continuing. Yes, it's tough, but that's your expertise is navigating that tough environment. That, that's important. The other thing is try and put in perspective the news they're hearing. I remember when I was living in Moscow and investing in Moscow, and I was trying to attract a U.S. investor into an investment that uh, we were contemplating there, and it was just at the time where there was some major turbulence in the Balkans, and there were very big riots outside the, or apparently big riots outside the U.S. embassy, and the investor based in New York was ringing me saying, guys, you want me to invest in Moscow? And what I'm seeing is massive riots outside the U.S. Embassy. I went for a walk on a Sunday afternoon outside the U.S. Embassy with my family, with my young daughters, one of whom was in a, a pushchair, and we walked around the U.S. Embassy and we filmed it. We filmed the walk around. We filmed the rioters, who actually were a group of about 50 people drinking beer and making a loud noise, but they were by no means a massive riot. We filmed it. I then went, because I was flying to New York on the Monday, and I took the film with me and showed it to the investor. And I said, that's the reality. CNN is not. Somehow you've got to convey that difference across to the investor. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. Now, a last one, which is a slightly different question that came through. How can you prove you've got a team 
to execute on a deal when one of the reasons you're actually raising money is to get a team? <laughs> mm -hmm. Tough one, chicken and egg. One of the ways you prove that is by having by being able to point to previous team experiences that you've had. And that may not be in an entrepreneurial venture. It may have been in a corporate environment. But if you can point to the way that you worked in a corporate environment previously, or the way you worked in a university club, or the way you worked in a sports team, all of those are indicators of the way that you can behave in a team and the way you can construct a team. You do need, though, to try and find those references and try and share those references with your investors so that the investor begins to get a sense of, okay, this is not just a one-person band or a couple of people, but actually when Susan says that she's putting together a team, she really does know how to do that. She's done it before, and you can and I can ask, and in my due diligence, I find that, yes, she has a reputation for being able to work well with other people and with an alignment with another group of people, with people in her group. You've got to really look at that. You can identify also the potential other team members, because that's part of it. Classically, people say, I'll come and join you once you've raised the money. And so they're there as the potentials. Same thing for them. And you, got, you need to do it yourself in order to make sure you're going to be comfortable working with them. You need to make sure that they are people who work well in teams, that they're not just the solo star. Mm. And, and more on that, you're actually touching on the subject also in one of your lectures about the importance of the, of the team. I think we could go on for many more minutes and, and if not hours, Piers, and thank you so much for sharing your experiences. You're, you're really great at putting yourself in the, in the place of the entrepreneur and, and, and sharing some of the expectation of the investor and how they should respond to that. So very much appreciate that. Just before we part, to say a few quick words about the three products of the Investment Clinic. I mentioned the investor lectures. They're online now at theinvestmentclinic.com. The live clinics such as these, the next one will be in March. It will be announced on theinvestmentclinic.com. So make sure you check in regularly with the website. They're followed by 60 minutes of live hotlines with experts that are ready to help on a one-on-one -on -one if you need them to. And finally, on-demand clinic basically offers one-on-one -on -one support with experts that you can choose. You can look through the website and, and pick one whose expertise you need at the moment or whose time zone you can actually work with. And then finally, don't forget that on groundupproject.net, you can already start self-assessing by answering the, the questionnaire that's tested with investors. It will give you a, a visual evaluation of your investment readiness as a first step. It's also used by investors who do look through the platform at deals to match with their, their preferred uh, level of maturity in terms of investments. Thank you very much to you all. And thank you again, Pierce, for, for being with us today. Great pleasure. And let me just wish everyone on the, on the call the best of luck with your, with your projects, your businesses. Thanks a lot. Until the next time. For more insights from Impact Investors, visit www.theinvestmentclinic.com.